So this is um, episode 22 of the Treatment Room Secrets podcast. Um, I am honored to be here with Carl Olson, uh, Dr. Carl Olson, um, and a, you know, I, I would love to call you a friend. I haven't seen you in many years. We haven't spoken in many years, exchanged a couple emails, but super happy to be here with you. We're here in State College, Pennsylvania, uh, which was my home for a few years during college. Um, and it's my first time visiting here. So it's great being here with you. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much. You know, I had a, um, I arrived yesterday evening and it was a bit nostalgic uh, just driving around. As soon as I got close to State College, the first thing I did was turn off the GPS to kind of test my, uh, my knowledge of the area. But really um amazing i obviously had to drive uh, straight to uh jeffrey field just to uh, see it with my eye uh, you know try and smell the grass a little bit uh which was um gonna have uh, mixed feelings over it which maybe we can unravel later on um but you're a super interesting guy you entered my life um in you know d- during a tough season that I you know that I was going through it's almost it's a bit uh, funny looking back at it then um, just from my personal uh, state of mind you know the last time we sat um, as you mentioned now when you saw me outside you know I felt like I had a lot on my shoulders and I came to you for help for some guidance for a conversation maybe to release uh, some information dump some information on you um, but you know what you said to me now when I saw you for the first time outside was it's nice to see uh, a smile on my face indeed um, so now you know you make that I think that that will stick with me um, and it makes me think uh, yeah what was your impression how did I was I not smiling the last time I saw you you were uh, very serious because you had a lot going on within the team as a leader of the team taking on a lot of responsibilities to try to navigate things and all of those kinds of life experiences you can kind of pick up after a while like you can see it in somebody's face or maybe in their posture maybe in muscle tension and so forth and you can also see when the joy is there and the freedom and so forth so I had noticed that you were very seriously trying to navigate some things. And then when I saw you this morning, it was like a completely different scenario. So so I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. I'm also in a way glad to hear that I was, you know, serious back then trying to navigate these different things. Um, You know, it's, it was um, thinking about it and I do think about it often. I also write about it sometimes, Um, especially that season where I, you know, I got to know you um, is because I was trying to navigate new things in my life, um, navigate people, um, navigate the team, uh, relationships with coach, with teammates, with the staff. Um, and it's very difficult to do when the teams are losing. It's pretty frustrating. Also, we're here at a, um, a huge institution, Penn State, um, that doesn't really like to lose. Um, you know, they want, uh, they want to win and I absolutely get it and they should. Um, and that kind of ties into what you do and maybe why you know they wanted you here um is uh, you focus on performance um, you focus on psychology performance um, enhanced performance um, high performance um, can you how, how do you best uh, define what you do what your expertise is well i've tried different metaphors over the years one phrase that seemed to resonate pretty well with the athletes was the idea of being a strength coach for the mind if you think about what a strength coach does as a minimum, helping you to be stronger, more flexible, more agile, faster, etc., 
we can do the same thing with our thought processes. And there's a, a discipline and intentionality that goes along with that. So helping people get the most out of themselves by mastering their thought processes, the way they uh, think about things in advance, the way they filter experiences, the language they use to describe a situation has such a powerful impact on the next thing that you do. So that's kind of the way that I evolved into describing on a big picture level what it is. On a more um, close to home level, when I was doing an intro with the teams or individual athletes, we talk about the idea that as a human being, everything you do begins with a thought. And the quality of that thought has a big impact on the next thing that you do, which doesn't mean that performance psychology is more important than anything else. It's a sequencing thing. It comes first. If we're going to be really good at mastering our journey, that comes first. And then we use that great attitude that we select and cultivate in everything we touch in working out, in training, in nutrition, in sleep, in like literally in everything, mastering that on the front end helps you get the most out of everything else that you do. And so is it mental strength? Um, can it, can it be looked at? Um, you know, you're saying you're like a, a coach for the mind or a strength and conditioning coach for the mind. Can it be looked at as not only like developing this, um, capabilities or strength in the mind, but also as fitness where, you know, some weeks of the year I'm, my fitness might be very high and then some weeks it might get worse and worse and worse and then sometimes you get injured um and sometimes your fitness is very stagnant uh, so does the mind work in a similar way it, it certainly can and i there's still so much we don't know about the inner workings of the mind but we do know some things and as human beings you do go through some patterns and there's times when it things are a little bit easier um, it's easier, as you mentioned, we're at, we, we met at a university that likes to win, likes to win a lot. It's easier to cultivate some great attitudes and maybe responses to adverse moments and so forth when you're winning. Winning also can mask a lot and losing can reveal a lot. And then learning how to navigate some of the adversity and the losses and setbacks, injuries and so forth can reveal a lot about maybe your habits and tendencies and so I, I would actually look at some of the down moments and maybe some of the down cycles in performance, maybe the ideal situation to step in and teach some skills. And you'll grow right back up out of that. You know, if, if the individual takes ownership, like that's the other thing, you can have all the knowledge in the world. And if the person that you're talking with doesn't do anything with what you are discussing, then nothing's going to change. But I do think it's very much a human experience that you're going to have the ups and downs and then learning how to ride those waves is another practical skill. What is like, are there a couple of things that you wish almost that a couple of skills that maybe kids were taught at a younger age that, that they're just not? Yeah, that's a great question. That one probably could be a whole podcast by itself. Yeah. Uh, two things that come to mind whenever we start talking about like, what do you wish you knew when you were a kid or when coaching kids? One is the great value of productive failure. The idea that if, if everything you do is perfect as a kid, which we know it's not, and all of the feedback is that protective feedback to say how great you are, you have a, over time, you have a false sense of the 
reality that there's plenty of growth left. There's things you can do better. And then you run into a situation that may be an older level where a coach is stepping in and letting you know you're not as good as you think you are and we need to do some teaching and coaching. And that can be devastating if you're hearing it for the first time in high school or worse in college. So understanding that, you know, if you fail forward, you try something, if you're playing safe, you're not going to get better. If you're taking some risk, learning a new skill, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to get coached. And the coaching is feedback, which is information, which lets you grow. So going back to embracing productive failure and the fact that there's great lessons in there would be huge. I think the other thing, and I mentioned that the language that you use to describe something has a big impact on what you do. There the language is, you use to yourself. To yourself and to others, frankly, from a coaching perspective. I'm less interested in pointing out errors and more interested in pointing out solutions or ideas for growth. So it, I would love to see coaches embrace, and some do, some are masterful at this, Embrace the idea that if you're seeing an athlete underperforming a particular skill, you can either highlight the error or you can highlight the solution. If you highlight the error, you can inadvertently have them thinking more about the error. If you highlight the solution, the error takes care of itself and you're focusing on the growth in there. So those are some things like when I look back into my youth and youth sport and getting older in sports and so forth and looking at good coaches and great coaches, those great coaches all knew how to coach the solution. And so I think both of those things could go really nicely together. You want to make mistakes so that you can get coached and you want the solution. Did you play any sports yourself growing up? I did. It, uh, back in the olden days when I was a kid, you know, we, a lot of it was pickup sports. Frankly, when you were young, we didn't have the same organized leagues that you have now, or certainly nobody I knew could have afforded that. So, but I eventually got into the youth sport and played baseball and football. You know, eventually I, uh, in high school, I swam competitively, did cross country, and then eventually became a lacrosse player. Um, actually spent a little bit of time fencing, which is really different from lacrosse. And then, because I went to the United States Military Academy there, I was never going to go professional and frankly wasn't good enough um, at all. Uh, but they had the opportunity. The philosophy there as part of the leadership development is that every cadet is an athlete. So they had intramural sports, club sports, varsity sports, and I did some of all of that over my four years. So I just loved sport in general and picked up as many new sports as I could. And now I ski a lot. Oh, how are the knees? Um, better now. Yeah, <laughs> that's good because uh, I don't ski. Um, I kind of want to ski, but uh, I think I was brainwashed in soccer that don't ski because oh, you'll, yeah. you'll hurt your knees. Yeah, well, so now I'm a professional ski instructor, so I'll be happy to teach you. Oh, fantastic. So where do you ski usually? Uh, well, I teach in the kids program at Tussie Mountain and then whenever possible get to Vermont or uh, to New York in the Catskills. Fantastic. Noted. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So sports is ruthless, though, when you're yeah. trying to develop, progress and, you know, follow a dream to become a professional. Um, it really is ruthless because, uh, yes, you want to have the mentality of taking risks and developing. Um, but, you know, you can find yourself as a, let's say, a 13 year old with that mentality of, you know, you may be, um, you know, I, I don't want to limit this to any sport, but let's say in soccer, because that's what I know. Mm. You know, let's say you're on the field and you're a, um, 
you're a central midfielder. There's a lot on your shoulders and there's a lot going around and you're really like, your job is to connect what between all the players on the field. Um, and you want to take risks, but any risk you take could be your last moment stepping on the field, maybe forever at that level. Um, because, you know, you might make a mistake, they might forgive you. Next game, you're coming with the mentality of let's try and make, let's take a risk again because risk will maybe get me that reward, maybe help me improve. You make that second mistake, now coach takes you out. And now your confidence is um, it's almost distraught. Uh, maybe you can overcome that confidence issue. The third time you're on the field, you make a mistake again, coach takes you out. Now you're ready maybe never play again at that level, at age 13. Um, so, I, you know, I, I always struggled with that. Um, I always tried for myself and tried to maybe help my teammates replicate as best as I could, you know, as a teenager, you know, probably not using the same words I'm using now, but to find a balance, um, a balance of, I don't want to quantify it in percentages, but a balance of doing what you know will work most of the time and looking for those opportunities to maybe throw in some spice mm -hmm. um, to, to take a risk. Uh, but does that make sense? Like looking for that balance? Yeah, it makes sense. And and I wish I had a perfect solution for that because yeah. it's it also varies by sport and it varies by team culture, varies by coaching philosophy. All those types, types of things go into the mix. One thing that I do think is important is taking risks in training uh, to push yourself a little bit and get out of your comfort zone versus automatically waiting until a match to take a risk where you could be, instead of taking a risk, it could be perceived as being reckless um, or operating outside of the system. So if your coach has installed a particular system of play and you go rogue, nobody knows what to do with that, right? That's different from challenging yourself in training to go a little bit further, faster, a little bit more decisive, maybe owning your voice on the pitch a little bit more and then getting feedback. So that's one thing is understanding that you don't want to introduce new risk automatically in a competition that quote unquote counts. That's why we train, right? Also, the more you get comfortable with taking certain risks and um, getting the feedback and so forth in training, the more that will translate to a competition setting. The other thing though is and it's harder when you're younger. You mentioned 13. That's a really hard age to have some of the conversations that, that we've had. But I'm just, but, I use that age because even people maybe will find that hard to resonate with, but almost that's a cutoff age because if you're not performing at age 13, 14, you're, you're like, in terms of professional development, it's finished. It's, it's certainly hard. I, I do think that there's space, and I've seen some programs do this particularly well, where the coach-athlete interaction before and after practice and before and after match is different. And that's where you can really start to navigate some of this. So if you're, if you have a meaningful conversation with your coach before you go into training, it's like coach, I'm looking to extend myself a little bit. I'm looking to take a little bit more tactical risk on the pitch. Here's kind of what I'm thinking. And if you can do that at 13, that's really impressive. But if the coach makes space for that and the coach is like, has the individual conversations and talks about, here's where I want to see you grow. Here's where I want to see you take risk. Here's where what sounds like a good idea is actually counterproductive to the scheme that we're operating within. Those conversations 
before and after are super helpful because in the moment, if you know what you're doing, you're hoping your coach understands what you're doing, right? Coach is looking at situation like, what is he doing? And now coach is making up his own reason for why you're doing what you're doing. And all of a sudden you're getting pulled. You think you're taking a risk. Coach thinks you're being reckless. It, it doesn't work. And anytime you have any behavior going on, there's a reason behind it. And if you don't know the reason, you're going to make up the reason because we don't like gaps in understanding. That's just a human condition. Like we don't like to not know. Yeah. So we will make up our own reason. So when I'm talking to coaches, a lot of times I'll encourage them, like use curiosity. There's a reason behind every behavior you're seeing. If you can pursue that reason, you're going to be able to coach somebody into a solution. If you make up your own reason based on your lived experiences, you may miss this athlete completely and then nothing gets better. So there's a, there's an athlete component to this of intelligent risk, right? Not being reckless, but there's a coaching piece in this too, of making space for the conversation. And that's not just soccer. Like that's life. If you're in a leadership role and you're curious and you make space to understand you're going to get a lot more out of people. Tell me if you heard this one before from a, from an individual. I, um, I definitely had these thoughts while playing soccer. Um, I still do sometimes that, and I, I'm not saying this from a place where I was better than any of my teammates, uh, because I never was maybe the best player on the team or whatever that means. But sometimes I wish I picked an individual sport where maybe I wouldn't perform all the time, but at least I know that 100% of it is on me. Um, because in a team sport, you could do give 120%, but if everyone else around you isn't, um, then you are hopeless. I have heard that a few times. And I usually have heard it from an athlete who's experiencing frustration because either the athlete skill and the team structure isn't a great match at that particular time. You get a new coach introduces a new scheme of play, something like that, or the culture itself isn't conducive to the cohesion that you need in a team sport. As you, as you know, if you don't have a healthy culture and you don't have team cohesion, you've got a bunch of independent contractors on the field and that's never going to allow you to be at your best. And then you may have the individual that tries to put the whole team on their shoulders and win it by themselves. And that causes certain problems. You may have people just kind of holding back or getting selfish. That's not going to help. And at that point, it's uh, there's a tendency potentially like, man, if I was just doing an individual sport, I wouldn't have to deal with any of this stuff. It's just me. And they're not wrong. I mean, that's a that's a realistic way of looking at the situation there's also some challenges to the individual that's sport. what i was going <laughs> to ask yeah so maybe i'm underestimating some of those challenges because i've never been in an individual sport athlete before uh, can you highlight a couple well of those, maybe? so as an individual and you know what, what as soon as you say that comes to mind is the tennis player smashing the racket yeah. on the ground yeah i was thinking i went to golf a golfer smacking the club on the ground but same thing yeah you've got so in both golf and tennis, just to use them as examples, you could throw fencing in there too and some others. Those are individual sports, but they're teams, right? So your individual performance matters, and that's how you're judged. And the, 
the aggregate says how the team is going. So it's, there's a other challenge in there. If I don't want to let the team down, so I better be perfect. I have to win. You are alone with your thoughts more. It's easier to put more pressure on yourself. The self-talk can go negative more quickly or more judgmental more quickly. And you also, human beings are wired for connection. Whether we are introverts or extroverts, we're wired for some form of connection. In an individual sport, and especially I use golf because you're out there and your teammate, your next closest teammate may be four holes away. Like you're, the, the people that are in your foursome are not your teammates. So you're out there, you're competing against these other three, and they're doing the same thing all across the course. And you don't have that moment of the high five or the pat on the back or you know somebody picking you up or celebrating with you. You're literally alone with your thoughts in both tennis and golf. Tennis is a little bit closer because there's a little interaction. But in golf, you may not see your teammates for hours. And so the tendency to go internal is greater and the challenge of connection is greater. So there's no perfect it, there you, to yep. get, you're going to get something and you're going to give up something regardless of whether you're going team or individual, but to come back to your original scenario. Yeah. That when you have an athlete that's struggling with the current situation within a team sport, it is not uncommon to hear, man, if I was just in an individual sport, I wouldn't have this. And they forget that, but I'd have that. How is it for you, um, you know, working with athletes, let's say, at a place like Penn State mm -hmm. versus working with individuals um, at West Point, you know, who are soldiers, officers? It was strikingly similar in many ways. Um, I actually had that question come up when I interviewed for the Penn State job way back in the spring of 2017. If you're not familiar with the military academy or any of the service academies, it you may not realize there are still 17 to 21-year-olds in general, a few older. Um, they're learning how to enter into the military. They're learning how to lead and so forth. And it's a wonderful environment. I mean, I love that. But the... the incoming product isn't that different. So you come into Penn State, you've got really smart people who are driven to be really good that are in competitive situations that were drawn from a lot of the same people. So that environment wasn't all that different. What was different is that we, at the academy, we were able to say, okay, sport is a wonderful thing. It's also not what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. You're going to be leading soldiers at least for a while. Let's talk about those similarities. And we were, it was easier to make a trans translation or, um, yeah, kind of a translation of sports skill to military because you're talking about high stakes competition where the outcome matters, the enemy gets a vote. So you better get really good at mastering yourself. Well, you do that in athletics. You definitely do that as a combat leader that connection was really easy there. Like we, everything that you're learning about managing yourself in adversity of sport translates to your career automatically. We don't have the same forum or when I was still at Penn state, we didn't have the same forum to have that discussion of the, this is automatically going to translate. However, with the teams that I spent a lot of time with invariably that came up, all the things that we're talking about in terms of self-awareness and self-regulation are going to pay big dividends in the next thing you do, whether it's in the boardroom, the operating room, private practice, you know, whatever it is, or professional sport. 
So um, where the contexts are very different, the people that you're interacting with on a regular basis, they're pretty similar. Thinking about most team gather, 99.9% of team gatherings um, that I've ever had, whether in work or you know on the uh, with the, with a team, it's either only the team and very um, very casual, usually very fun environments um, where not a lot of vulnerability is shared by anyone. Mm-hmm. That's one, or you know, maybe uh, 49.95% of the interactions. The other 49.95% of the interactions are the team listening to the coach. Uh, the, uh, that's the natural hierarchy mm-hmm. of a team environment in sports, let's say, or even in a job environment. You have a team and the team leader. That's it. Uh, maybe the 0.5% is when everyone gets a beer together or celebrates something, uh, which again is usually very positive, very fun, a reason for celebration. Uh, do you feel like in when you when you're with the team, it's like it's a new environment for them. It's a uh, it's a different space that they're in. Um, do you do, do you notice that difference? Maybe from observing a, a normal team meeting with a coach versus when you're let's say gathering with a team and maybe encouraging some vulnerability i think there's a bunch of questions to unpack within that but in general so if i understand your question correctly let me give you two different scenarios and then we can go from there i can remember vividly stepping into a, a team setting where it was very clear once the coach left the room that the dynamic changed and because there was much a hierarchical very structured um culture does it always change sorry that i'm uh no it doesn't and so i'm looking i'm thinking of a particular situation Mm -hmm. in which it was very obvious how everything changed almost as if when the authority figure stepped out of the room you could hear everybody exhale and now it's kind of a little bit safer my role was interesting in that i i was not in anybody's food chain if i stepped in with a with a coach with a team or with both I wasn't in any of the, nobody in there was evaluating me for, you know, my job. And that's the nature of that type of a resource. So it's normally a little bit safer for people to just kind of be themselves. When you, um, when you see a coach or staff leave the room and then you feel and sense, because a lot of what we do as humans in interactions is you can sense something before you can necessarily put language to it. When you sense the change, that's an indicator. It's an indicator of so, there's something with the structure that's maybe inhibiting people from being themselves. Maybe they can't be vulnerable. Maybe they can't be as connected. Maybe their job is to just do what they're told. That's that, which is not illegal or wrong or whatever. It's a, a structure. Yep. I can think of other teams where I, um, where maybe a coach turns a meeting over to me and leaves and nothing changes because everybody was really comfortable in their own skin and they were very open. And the only thing that changed is the number of bodies in the room. I can think of another particular team where the coach was almost always in the room and it didn't get in the way of anything. I heard vulnerability, openness, curiosity, um, ownership and and so forth. And all of those things tell me something about the interaction between the coaches and the athletes when I'm not around. And so you can sense that. And this, it, this is my opinion. So you'll, you may find others in my field that don't agree with this, 
I think in that moment, it's notice, be curious, and don't take sides. Or as I have often said, don't get caught between the dog and the fire hydrant. Like you're not, your job is not to take sides in there. It's to understand and help people grow. And the approach to helping a team grow is different depending on which of those dynamics you see. In teams, um, and I almost saw this as a defense mechanism by individual team members, is that when someone does make a mistake, it's almost like people around the person making a mistake want to capitalize on that yeah. person's mistake and point fingers immediately. And, um, um, you know, almost um, make sure that no one's pointing fingers at them, so immediately they point fingers at the other person. Is that co unfortunate, a common practice? It's, um, it's not common in great cultures. It's very common in... But are, are most cultures not great from what you've... Uh, I know, you, and also you've worked at very um, good places. Yeah, I've been really fortunate that I've never worked for an organization where the whole organization was like that. Um, even in great organizations, you're going to find some subculture, maybe one, um, that has some of those aspects in it. So you're right. I, I mean, I've been really fortunate in the places that I've worked. Generally speaking, I'm really proud of and very supportive of all the coaches and athletes in, in both of those institutions and other places that I've worked. But you can, when you have that dynamic, and I don't care if it's in sport or in business, again, be curious. There's a reason behind this. If people are ce almost celebrating somebody else's shortcomings because they're somehow going to benefit from it, you know that you're looking at an organization where everybody's in it for the transaction. What's in it for me? They're not invested in each other. And they can be successful that way. Then they're never going to be great that way. And, and, and if they happen to stub their toe on greatness once, it's not sustainable. When you start seeing everybody taking ownership of mistakes... And everybody realizing that if one person made a mistake, I probably could have helped them prevent it. So I'm going to prevent it next time. Or you're sharing or you're supporting and so forth. You, I've often said you're going to get more in leading people if you're picking them up than putting them down. Like You're not going to sustain excellence by constantly putting people down or po pointing fingers at folks. When you point fingers at yourself and say, okay, the team wasn't great today. Where can I get better to make them better? Then that's something different. When the team collectively says, hey, we weren't great today. How can each of us get better? Then you're going to have something really special. Unfortunately, it's it seems to be more prevalent. And I don't know. I honestly don't know this. I don't know if it's more prevalent that you're going to find that one or two teams where they're pointing fingers. Or... If we just know more about it now because of instant connection, social media, texting, all this mm. kind of stuff, maybe it's always been that way, or maybe it's just easier to take advantage of a situation now because of technology. And that's just an opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when you're at a place like Penn State, uh, we said you want to win, mm -hmm. um, and you are 
some sort of you know this is um for many people like like myself that was the the highest place let's say they reached in their professional pursuit of this career they wanted to play at whatever it is hockey football soccer baseball um but when you're taking it back to that 13 year old 14 or 15 year old boy or girl trying to you know be the next um, nba player or mlb player or premier league soccer player you are playing for a team but it's individuals who are trying to make it professional and everyone knows that 99.9% of them will make it um so it's it's very hard to um congeal that uh, you know a team culture really um where everyone is competing against each other who's going to make it to the next year and who's going to make it to the professional team um so i always um that's what that's what i felt i felt always felt hostility i always tried to in my mind to kind of acknowledge that set that aside for me um and believe in by the team doing well that it will help me elevate myself but that was a message that was never taught really to us um and that no one was really practicing um and the older you get the 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 more competitive it is because you know as i mentioned like 13 is a cut off age before 14 level and then as you get to 17 it's like you're an adult already in the world of sports and that's it you might be the end of the road on the end of the journey for you um so like at those ages it's um absolutely ruthless yeah. so it's almost like it's um you know i'm trying to think of an analogy but it's like if that person made a mistake again and again we can point fingers at them and that removes them from the equation yeah. and then we oh, less one person less to think about before we make um the next jump um and i think that i think that's very i think it's prevalent in the world of business as well because you know it's very doggy yeah. dog people want to progress make yeah. more money you know do better whatever that means um how do you measure success with your athletes like it's, it's a very difficult one like yeah. like our relationship you know we pretty much lost every game uh, that season but i see it as a success looking back Um, I don't know what you would define that as but what do you define success because it's I'm assuming for you and your profession it's not just about scoring goals and winning. Yeah, exactly. So let's go back for a second first on that whole again we don't have a perfect answer to the 13-year-old challenge because like we do know some best practices. There's ways to very intentionally cultivate culture on the front end before you do things periodically checking in on it communicating coaches letting athletes know this is how we're going about things and this is how we want to respond to adversity this is how we want to respond to feedback and so forth this is where finger pointing will destroy you because eventually you'll be labeled as a bad teammate even if you're a great athlete and nobody wants the finger pointer finger pointer at the pro level isn't going to be very welcome in the locker room certainly not at college so let's not start that now parent education is going to be really important here because coaches have the athletes for a short period of time every day schools parents friends all those uh, social media all those things are influencing them as well so if we could call a, a massive do over we'd get on the front end of all that stuff and have left less to clean up the reality is we're going to per- be cleaning that up in perpetuity when good coaches over communicate what it means to be a great athlete what it means to be a great great teammate and what's expected at the next level no matter where you are that's going to help uh it's not going to fix that then when you look at at your to your question about what do I look at as success i actually generally don't uh you may remember 
if when you come into my office, one of the first things as we'll get to know each other, and one of the first uh, questions I'm going to ask is, uh, how can I help? Because I don't have all the answers. I don't. I got to be curious and f- see it. what is your lived experiences right now, and then figure out where do we go next. And then as we go down the road, okay, what can that look like for you? What what does success look like for you in this particular season? This role as a captain, um, navigating this adversity of whether it's coach athlete, athlete athlete, all those different types of things. You're gonna know what success looks like. You may not have thought about the language that you would put to that. And I'll help with that. And then if we spend, and and, and this could be you in a leadership role. It could be you as the athlete on the field. You're going to tell me what success looks like for you. And then we're going to periodically check in on that. said, okay, you came in wanting to, let's use a, a very basic example. You come in and you want to be more assertive on the pitch. You want to find and own your voice and communicate loudly. Maybe you're a center back and you need to be orchestrating the team, but you're an introvert with a quiet voice. And so your goal is to get more assertive, louder, more precise with your communication and so forth. And then we work on some self-regulation skills to do that. And then a month or two later, we sit down and say, okay, how's it going? And then you're going to tell me how it's going. Okay, what are the coaches saying? What's the feedback that you're getting? And so forth. And so you're going to say, okay, when I came in, I was at this point. Now I'm at that point. That feels like success. Or that feels like we were moving in the right direction, but it's not, we're not there yet. Or we've been doing this work and it's not paying off. Now let's figure out what other skill we can introduce. So that on an individual level is kind of how I look at success. Did you experience the changes you were looking to experience? When I would meet with coaches, and as you know, a lot of the work that I was doing, meet with the coaches first, partner with them, decide where the team needs to go, and then step in with the team. Well, then at the before the season starts, I get an idea where the team is. At the end of the season, I get an idea where the team is, and then sit down with the coaching staff and say, okay, you said A, B, and C. Those are the changes you'd like to see. Did you see them? And if they say yes, like, what are your indicators? If if it was no, what are your indicators there? Okay, now we have a, an idea on how we're going to move forward again. Um, so it's very organic. Um, there are folks in the field who use more psychometric instruments and so forth. For the, for the performance education approach I was taking, that wasn't going to pay off. You could get better at all of the skills and not see the change that you're looking for. And that wasn't success. So we did we experience the change that we were looking to experience? Did the team get closer even though they didn't like the situation they were in? That's success. We've actually seen that. You spoke to us, I remember, I think, a lot about the All Blacks. Yes. And the All Blacks and Blacks culture. And I think you even had the book in your office. I did. Um, yeah. So... When did you maybe, why did you use them as an example? And when did that maybe start influencing you? So I have always had a great, ever since I knew about the All Blacks and they're legendary in the rugby world, I had a great respect for them. But I was very fortunate that in... Speaking of rugby, by the way. Yes. In, the, in 2007, I was invited to Redondo, California 
Ken Revisa, who's one of my idols in the sports psychology field and one of my mentors and, and friends, uh, he was doing a think tank. And so um, uh, Dr. Nate Zinzer, who worked, he and I were very close colleagues at West Point for a number of years. Um, he and I went out to this think tank and Ken had some of his friends from the All Blacks there. Um, some of their high performance guys, they had sports psychologists and others in high performance space that were there. And we just became friends. And I was listening to their stories on how they developed athletes and I was blown away. Um, we got them to visit us at West Point. Well, the, that staff would come to the States and then they'd spend some time because that's a long trip. Yeah. And so they, we got them to come to West Point and spend some time with us. And we started sharing best practices on developing team culture and so forth. And then I actually had the, the distinct honor of that they flew me to New Zealand as part of their workshops in preparation for a World Cup one fall. And what, was, what year was this, by the way? I want to say it was 2011. Okay. Um, I'm, just, I'm just asking. I need to go back to my calendar, honestly, because <laughs> it was either 11 or 12, and those two yeah. years were a blur in my mind for <laughs> some other uh, job-related reasons. I'm just, I'm just asking because I think they, didn't they go through? We had um, I had the privilege of speaking to um, uh, Mike McGurn, who is a strength and conditioning mm -hmm. coach sitting in Northern Ireland, and uh, he worked for the All Blacks for a couple of years as a strength and conditioning coach. So we got to speak about that a little bit, um, and he mentioned that around two thousand six seven, they actually they they that was after a few years of maybe not doing as well yes. as they wanted, and they decided to all right, let's make the shift. Yeah. Um, so I had met these guys shortly after they were into making that shift and guys like Mike Chu and Dave Hadfield and, uh, Todd Blackadder, like all these guys that were really influential. Um, Ken Hodge, that really talented people in different parts of the, um, high performance arena. They were looking for what are some of the solutions They're them spending time with Ken, them coming to West Point. It was all a, iron sharpens iron type thing. We're sharing with them. They're sharing with us. We borrowed each other's team building processes and so forth, but it was all the, the culmination that fall, they did win the world cup and it was the culmination of a lot of resetting. Um, and somewhere in that mix is when the book legacy was being written, but I kept hearing all of the content in that, in the way that they talked aspects of ownership, you know, of nobody's better than anybody else. Their concept of sweep the sheds, leaving the jersey better than you got it. Um, I really, one that really jumped out at me and it resonated with a lot of our athletes was to play with a blue head and not a red head. Red head meaning, you know, hot head, on fire, emotions, all that kind of stuff. The blue head was the cool, calm, collected, just notice and respond versus knee-jerk react and, and so forth. And as we unpacked some of those things, we found the the way that we were talking about self-regulation skills at West Point and the way that they were talking about it with the All Blacks were very similar. It was just different language saying the same things. So that when you have a world-renowned program that's teaching the same skills, albeit with a different dialect, you want to be able to leverage that in other things that we were doing. So to me, it was a perfect fit to bring some of what I learned from them. And also the relationships, like I'm still in contact with, I do a couple of different, uh, I guess they're kind of like think tanks that are on Zoom. And every once in a while, I'll see some of my All Blacks friends that are on the screen. And it's like, you know, it's old home week. 
Um, I hope I can mention this, but yeah. you, you mentioned that um, you're now navigating uh, or trying to retire, uh, <laughs> trying to yeah. step away uh, from work after a long career. Um, I'm assuming do you um, spend a lot of time thinking um, about your career, about different instances you've had, um, the highs and lows, and what led you down this path and this career? On a day-to-day basis, probably not. I just really enjoy the ride that I've been on. Uh, I wouldn't change a thing. It was a really wild ride. Um, I, I'm in that kind of split in my life right now where I'm enjoying the heck out of everything I did and everything I learned from it, things that went well and things that didn't go so well. I'm also a voracious learner, so I'm still connecting with you know webinars, podcasts now, um, reading books, sharing with others. I have a um, an unofficial circle of friends that are all across the country that do different things for a living, but they're all like-minded in terms of wanting to grow and share with each other and so forth. So a lot of just connecting with each other. Um, and a lot of the things that I continue to learn help explain things that I lived through, through my different careers. So that's a lot of fun. Um, I haven't done like the intentional sitting down, reflecting and journaling about it. I just kind of just enjoy like every day there's a connection between different chapters of my life. And to me, that's really fun. Was it obviously nothing you can, you cannot predict the way your career will develop, no, but, not did, at all. Did, but did, it was, like, did you, um, did you aim to be in this profession that you're in, in uh, performance, in psychology? No, not at all. I mean, if, if you had told a younger me what I would end up doing, first of all, I would have said, I didn't know that was a thing. And second of all, I'd be like, you're kidding me. Um, no, I grew up from the time I was a little kid. I knew I wanted to go to West Point. I knew I wanted to be an army officer. It was like a calling. Like I never lost that. But by the time I finished the academy, I did not want to step into a classroom ever again. Like I loved learning how to be an infantry officer and I wanted to do all the hard stuff that an infantry officer does. And I did not want to sit in a classroom again because the book learning part was hard for me. And I went about my military career for quite a while and things went really well for a long period of time. And then out of nowhere, I get this opportunity and the army says, Hey, we're going to send you to grad school, which scared me because I was done with the classroom and you're going to get a degree in sports psychology. And I didn't know what that was. Uh, And you're going to go to West Point for three years and you're going to do sports psychology work with cadets. Okay. You know, that's, it was, I, I, I had to go through a little bit of an interview process to get selected for that. And it was really, a lot of that was based on the fact that my military career was going well. High performance translates in different yeah. ways. So, but your military career um, didn't really involve on paper psychology? No, no. I was a civil engineering management guy at West Point. I took one psychology class. It didn't go that great. Um, so I know I never thought I would get into that. But as I was going through this interview process to go to grad school and then go to West Point uh, to teach, I started reading up on what is sports psychology. And I was fascinated because it wasn't the clinical stuff that you would learn with being like getting a you know doctorate in psychology and so forth. This was all about human performance. And I loved that idea. But I stepped into a classroom at University of Virginia 1994 with Dr. Bob Rotella before he went into just private practice. He was a legend in the field and he's my professor. I'm like, wow. 
And every time he opened his mouth, I was thinking, this explains so much. It explained things I learned about myself in going through ranger school and, and becoming a paratrooper and just leading infantry soldiers. And like all, it just kept coming back again and again to understanding stress response, the confidence piece, responding to adversity. All this made perfect sense. And I, I think I love this stuff. And spent three years at West Point helping cadets in academic, athletic, and military development using sports psychology strategies. And it, by the time I left that three-year assignment, my boss on the way out the door said, well, what do you want to do in your future? So I want to come back and lead this center. He goes, yeah, but, I mean, what else do you want to do? Because only one person gets to do that. And I said, well, I'll do what the Army wants me to do, but that's what I want to do. And so I went and spent a year with the Air Force, and then I spent three years overseas in NATO. And while I was over there, I got the call and said, hey, we're actually going to put you into a doctoral program and send you back to West Point to be the center director. Like that's, I would give up anything to do that. And so I did. I came to Penn State for my PhD, which is how I got connected to Penn State. And then I went back and I ran, you know, we had different roles for, for a while. I was a deputy director and then the director of the Center for Enhanced Performance. And at the time, we were developed. So it's, so it's the Center of Enhanced Performance at West Point? At West Point, yeah. Well, at the time, we were tasked with developing a, a curriculum and then a program for the entire U.S. Army around the globe based on what we were doing at West Point. And that program was successful and got um, subsumed into other bigger programs and so forth. It's still alive and well out there. But if you told young Lieutenant Olson, someday you're going to be directing a center that's going to have an influence across the entire United States Army and it's in performance psychology. I mean, there's no way that's going to happen, right? But it happened. And so, you know, I couldn't have predicted any of it. And when I retired from the Army, I thought, well, that's been a nice ride. I, would, I wouldn't change a thing. It was a blast. And then I came to back to Happy Valley and uh, one of my, my, the chair of my dissertation committee had reached out and said, Hey, we're looking for an adjunct over in the higher ed program. And he interested in doing some teaching. Like, yeah, that sounds like it would be fun. So I did that for a little while. And then my predecessor in the athletic department called and said, Hey, I'm retiring. Any chance you'd apply for my job? I said, nah, I don't want to, I don't want to go back to full-time work. And then I got to know a couple of the coaches and I'm like, well, maybe I do. And then this one day, I looked at my wife and said, I think I want to go for it. So I have an idea because everything that we, and this comes back to how we approached things during my tenure at Penn State. I had this idea of partnering with leaders to help them get the most out of their teams consistently, which was the model we were using in the Army. You can't go one-on-one -on -one with 750,000 or more soldiers. You just can't. Yeah. And but, then like a different scale, but here you had yeah. a lot of 800 students. Yeah, 850 yeah. some odd student athletes across 31 sports. You still can't do that one-on-one, -on -one, but you can partner with coaches and you can integrate things into the way they coach. So I, I told my wife, like, I, I think I want to introduce this and see. And if they don't like the idea, they won't hire me. But if they do like the idea, maybe they will. And then I was selected for it and I told my wife like this is gonna be a lot like the army where you're never gonna see me <laughs> and my wife's been fantastic about everything that happened at West Point and then here and she said you can't not do this go for it but I get to decide when you're done 
which is exactly the agreement we had at West Point too, when I, um, I stayed on a little bit longer than we thought. And in both cases, like she called, we sat down together and said, okay, it's time to move on. But it was like a dream come true over and over again, because the thing I fell in love with in 1994 just kept being an option for me, uh, which is crazy when you think about it. But I couldn't have scripted that. Why do you think that um, young Carl, when you were a kid, was fixated on going to West Point? I don't know. Um, I, when I talked to my parents, uh, they, you know, a lot of people joked about it. They said they brought me up because I grew up about a half hour from West Point. And they took me up to watch a parade one day. And according to them, four-year-old Carl was sitting in the stands and said, that's going to be me someday. And, you know, the adults around you are like, that's nice. And tomorrow you're going to want to be a fireman. And maybe the next day you're going to want to be a doctor. And I, and I never left. It, it, was, it really felt like a calling. It was like something inside me. And then every time I went back to visit or when I got there as a cadet or when I went back as a faculty member, every time I stepped foot on the grounds, I felt like I was home. And I can't explain it and I can't justify that. But it was just... I don't think I consciously made that decision. I think it was just a calling. Do you ever visit West Point? Um, having lived there four years as a cadet, three years as a rotating faculty, and then seven and a half years as permanent faculty, I, I don't go back and visit as much because I don't think there's much there that I don't know. But if I'm in the area, if I go back to visit my parents or something, if, if I'm in the area and I have time, I'll usually stop by for a couple minutes. But and I still have friends there. But stepping in still feels like home? Yeah. Yeah. It's a different place. But again, in Happy Valley, it's the same way. Like, uh, you know, I'm not employed at Penn State anymore. But if I go to a field hockey game, which was the first team that I formally worked with, um, it feels like home. So, again, I've been really lucky. Yeah. Um, teaching. Uh You know, that's, I'm assuming, also a new environment because um, I think, uh, you know, working with a team or working with cadets is a bit different than teaching in a classroom. I, I don't think it has to be. Um, I was probably an oddball professor here, um, teaching faculty, whatever you want to call it, because I, like you're teaching masters and doctoral students. They're pretty mature to begin with. Yeah. But I always stepped into the room. Like the first day of class, we spent the entire first three hours together coming to consensus on and codifying what our classroom culture was going to be, how we're going to operate as a team, what the expectations are, mine of them, them of each other, them of me, and so forth. And then we would periodically throughout the semester revisit that and say, okay, we said we were going to be all about this. Did we do it? Are we, are we there? What can be better? And so forth. So it was much more collaborative, like leading a, a, a special team of folks, whether it's athletes, soldiers, whatever. And it was very collaborative. And, uh, you know, I, what I, the way I framed it with my students is like, I'm not teaching you, I'm learning with you. This is, yes, I know more theoretically than you do or else the roles would be reversed, but we're in it together. Like, Think of, yep. I'm your coach. You're my team. We're in this together. I want you to succeed. If everybody in here earns an A, I did my job. Or earns the grade that you wanted to earn. Because not everybody's in it for the grade. and some Everybody yep. has different reasons. So it wasn't really that different. We did um, 
there was a lot of peer-to-peer teaching. There was a lot of mentoring outside of the classroom. You know, I, tr- I literally tried to make it a high-performance team. And that kept it fun for me as well because I was still... And I used to get... Uh, students would grab me in the hallway or something and talk about... Uh, get get they didn't know they were getting a philosophy class as well as like a student development class because I would bring in the performance psychology for them if we got to late October and I could read the stress in the room and everybody's exhausted. I'm like, okay, time out. Let's bring in an energy management component of this. Let's let me treat you like athletes for a moment. I know you're tired, you got a lot going on. We have skills that'll help make this a little bit better day. Let's do that first. And so yeah, that made it so familiar and fun. And I, I'm still in touch with a lot of those students. So I, I guess it worked. Is that fulfilling, being in touch with students, yeah. being in touch with athletes? All. Like you told me, we don't have to mention names, but athletes that do well after you work yes. with them for a couple of years. I don't know if there's anything more fulfilling in in this space where I, and it, it happened yesterday and it happened this morning. And it might not happen for another six months, but I will hear from athletes, students, um, from when I first started as a faculty member at West Point in 96. Some of them, they, they appear out of nowhere sometimes. They have this moment in their life and it's like, hey, this reminds me of a time when, and then I'll, I hear from them. Or some that I hear from all the time, and then some from here that I hear from, that whether they're in the pros or they're coaching or they're in business and so forth. I had an amazing note from an athlete who is in law school now. And the note just talked about everything that we did in our sports psych conversations with the team. I remembered them, I took notes, and they're paying off in my law school classrooms. Like, you can't put a price on those types of things. And sometimes it's just somebody saying hi, and it just makes you smile. So language, I want to talk about language um, because we spoke about it in, in brief in the beginning. Um, and I recently listened to a podcast with a arch, an archer, an archery coach um, who, I forget his name, I wish I did, uh, but I found it super interesting and maybe analogous just to life and anything we're doing in which we're trying to perform. Um, and he, the way he described it, the way I understood it at least is, any action you're taking uh, that requires focus in order to perform, you need to break down all the little steps of, that you're taking and almost repeat those steps to you in your mind, to yourself, while performing the activity. Um, I know maybe we sp- there's a language and we can talk about it. Maybe we refer to it as maybe how you reflect to yourself or how you prepare but language in terms of actually performing an activity. So maybe if I take, if I compare archery to maybe taking a penalty kick, mm-hmm. when everyone's looking at you, the crowd's looking at you, the TV cameras are on you, um, and the goalie's playing mind games, a lot of that can over, you know, overtake your mind. Um, negativity might start coming into your mind. You might say, oh, what if I miss? What will that person say? What will my coach say? What will my teammates think? We'll lose the game, all these things. But if you repeat every tiny step to yourself about what you're going to do now, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take four steps backwards and now I'm taking the first step, now the second step, now I'm going to lift my leg, now I'm going to plant my left foot, now I'm going to strike with my right foot to the left side of the... Hopefully that's a goal. Um, is that technique something um, um, resonate with you at all? Is it something that you've used, th- thought about? Uh, yes and no. 
Uh, and like most things, a good idea in one context may not be a good idea in another. So generally speaking, the idea of language for mental rehearsal of something does a couple of things. One, it reinforces internally that we know how we want to perform, right? So you're speaking something into existence. Another thing is that when you go through certain steps, your brain can't consciously focus on two things at the same time. So it's either focusing on your steps or it's focusing on the pressure of the situation or the trash talking or whatever. So that can be a distraction. However, it doesn't automatically help in a performance moment to be thinking technique because a technique is something that you've already internalized. So, and again, sports are different. So, at, you know, in archery, very much a closed skill sport, like you're in complete control, albeit you have wind and weather conditions, but it's basically, it's you and your routine which is not so different from a golfer. And on a PK, it's not that different. However, the speed of your actual performance, you're, in archery, you're literally talking about a draw and a release, which it, for the novice watching, you didn't see much movement. When, you're, when, when it's PK time, you've got a lot of movement in a very quick period of time. And um, you cannot consciously speak the language of that at the same speed that you need to perform it. So you can actually be creating some interference that'll make you mechanical instead of fluid. In those situations, we would encourage one, the mental rehearsal takes place long before you need it. And then, um, one technique that we used in both in, in soccer, field hockey, lacrosse, field goal kicking in football, things like that is a focal point when you when your mind has the idea of where where you want to hit and that's it your body's already been trained to do it the focal point is the only thing that's technique that you would think about and the rest of it is a breath control breathe in breathe out release maybe a cue word that when you say the cue word it locks in the routine that you go through to kick, um, that cue word, ideally when you're, and it's different if you're a little kid, but at, at your level, when you were playing here, I wouldn't want you thinking step-by-step -step technique in that moment because you already know how to take the kick. We might have a cue word that's like banana or blueberry, something that's totally unrelated to soccer, and it just kicks in your routine to breathe a certain way, approach the ball, and strike the ball a certain way. So now we're entering into banana mode. You say it one time? Yeah, once. That, and that becomes a it, so switch. It, it's the switch. It's literally the switch. And like for a golfer, it might be tapping the club behind the ball right before you take the swing. And, and for a tennis player, it might be tapping the side of the racket. It, but it's a, like a, a physical or mental thing that becomes your switch to let your automatic performance go through. You've already trained the automaticity of the skill. Trusting that is vital. Getting out of your own way is really important. Again, very different from when you're learning to master a skill in training. You may go through again and again, but even in a training situation, you want to do that at full speed at some point with no conscious thought of technique to allow your body to do what you've trained it to do. Otherwise, it's like an unfolding lawn chair and it can be a mess. And you see somebody 
hover over a ball and you can tell they're thinking too much. And then what happens next is like, you don't ever kick that bad. What happened? Well, I was in my own head. Well, to get out of your own head, have your target for your focal point, have your, you know, a particular phrase or, or thing that you do that is the switch to the automaticity and then let it go. But everything anyone in any career and any mode of life they're in, um, it does kind of involve performance, right? Mm-hmm. Anything we yeah. do yeah. is performance. Um, so should people th- be thinking more about focal points on their day-to-day activities? I think it can be really useful. Um, if you were to follow somebody around throughout their day and could somehow track all the m- moments where they lost their attention, it would be stunning. Like we lose our attention. I mean, the average you know, attention span for like the student athlete age that we are familiar with, it's like five to eight seconds. Like people think it's, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes. And when I say attention span, it's like before there's another competing thought. And it's actually gotten worse with technology because now 24 seven access, the phone dings, it, you, you look at it, but you're supposed to be on your task, et cetera. They're conditioning us to uh, yeah. lower our attention. <laughs> no yeah. doubt. Uh, and you can get it back for sure. I mean, yeah. but you get it back, it. but it can also be worked on and yes. developed, right? Yes, absolutely. So uh, there are different things that you can practice throughout your day. One that I think is really helpful, and we used to talk about um, walking across campus and doing it in a mindful way where you're selecting the target of your attention, which might be the flower in somebody's window. And then it might be the squirrel that's gathering nuts. And it might be a person coming down the street. But it's not that those things are distracting you. It's that you are noticing and intentionally shifting to the next thing. Choosing to so I, focus I, If on I notice something and I say, okay, I got it. That squirrel is interested in that nut. It must be fall in state college and we're getting ready for winter. Okay. Now let's see what else is out there. And now I shift my attention and again, shift again. When you notice things and then you intentionally shift your attention, you're taking more ownership of what you're attending to. You're going to get distracted. So having a personal reset for the distraction, when you notice that you've been distracted, that can be, you know, clapping your hands, taking a deep breath, closing your eyes and reopening something that to you means reset. I've just lost my attention, reset. Um, it used to be easy to talk with students about this at West Point back in the olden days when there was a big clock with the, you know, the hour and minute hands on it. And every student is going to look at that clock to see how much time is left in class. If you've decided ahead of time that looking at that clock is my reset, it means I got distracted and it's time to get back on task because I attach meaning to that before I need it. The next time my eyes wander to the clock, it's like, oh yeah, time to get back on task and so forth. The more you practice noticing and extending or noticing and shifting, the easier it becomes, just like any other skill. So practicing that. It's also possible to do something really rudimentary like following the second hand on a clock, if you can still find the second hand on a clock, and just see how long you can hold that before uh, another thought comes in and just work on extent. Ex- extending that period you can listen to music and follow a particular voice or a particular instrument see how long through the song you can go without shifting onto something else um, the two things that i think are um, 
invaluable in all of this attention and it could pay dividends in the workplace, in a team meeting, in a classroom is um, one, you have in, an intentionality. Like there's something in here that I want to understand or get better at. And then second is goes back to that curiosity. I want to see what else comes next. If you watch somebody, and this always comes up, you watch somebody binge watch something on Netflix, right? Or Apple TV or whatever your favorite platform is. Have you watched Ted Lasso, by the way? I have. But I was late to the party. I watched Ted Lasso when I was recovering from a surgery last year. So I didn't have anything else to do. The coaches were way ahead of me on that. Brilliant uh, though, no? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so binge-watching shows. Binge-watching shows. Generally, people start a, sh a show or series because they're interested. And then they go to the next episode because they're curious about what comes next. You, you try to have a conversation with somebody who's binge-watching something and they don't hear you. And just like watching kids watching a movie or cartoons, they don't hear you. Not because they're blocking you out. It's because something else has their interest. We can actually do this. We just need to be intentional about it. We need to be interested and curious. And if we do that in any setting, time flies and you stay locked on. Eventually, you're going to lose because we're not built to sustain attention indefinitely. We need to have breaks and, and so forth. But you'll get better at it in any setting if you're interested and curious. We have a lot of synthetic uh, tools nowadays that people use for focus. Um, it you know it's like um, is it it almost hurts me when I see those situations. Mm -hmm. Again, I know there's certain people that maybe I'm not a doctor myself that maybe need those things in order to focus um, for for however long they need to focus, but. I see a lot of people, let's say, like myself, who are working on this focus fitness mm -hmm. or focus strength or whatever we name it, but improving in focus spans, um, who choose maybe the easy route of using other ways of focus, whether it's, you know, smoking cigarettes or taking, um, you know, certain drugs um, mm -hmm. or chewing uh, nicotine, nicotine um, uh, gum. But which does help with focus, right? Because you can sit down, do your job for two hours without thinking about anything else. Well, it certainly can. It, yeah. it certainly can. Um, and from my understanding, it definitely helps um, many people. It helps some and, yeah. and doesn't help others. And mm. there's, caffeine especially is an interesting one because bodies will interact with it differently. Mm. Okay. Uh, so if you're, yep. if you're used to it, um, it might take, you know, it might help you. If you've never had caffeine, it might keep you from being able to pay attention because you now all of a sudden you feel wired. Yeah. So it, it, I think there's always individual differences in there. Uh, so yeah. I don't think there's a, a one size fits all, but for, for several people it could be helpful. But so I think these, but these things are so um, accessible, even me with coffee, like maybe I wouldn't have been able to ask you all these questions today without my cup of coffee here. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't think it's looked at um, as like we look at going to the gym to develop muscle. Yeah. Um, we don't look at it that way, maybe because it's um, it's, it's less it's not visual, visual and it's you know it's it's hidden in our brains. Um, same with mental toughness, um, mental health, mental fitness. Um, how can we um, you know how can we make it cool? You know, because yeah. it's it, you know people want to develop uh, pecs and uh, biceps. It's 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 very it's intuitive. Go to the gym, you know, work out every day, and you will get that. Um, 
but for some reason we shy away from it, uh, from practicing those things. It's always, it's almost also seen as a, um, like a weird thing, you know, like, for example, I think, have you played around with meditation? Um, have you, like, have you, mm. is it something you uh, read about, tried before, practiced? Mm-hmm. So I feel, I, I always thought, uh, even here as a student athlete, um, I even took a yoga class um, and it always ended with a meditation uh, period of the class. Um, I just thought my brain was unable to perform meditation. So I gave up on meditating because after two seconds, I'd have another thought. And after four right. seconds, another thought. And after two seconds, another thought. I thought, how, how the hell can I shut everything out and meditate? Right. Um, but as of recently, actually sitting down and practicing it, like I would practice in improving my running fitness, um, you notice that when you do practice it all the time intentionally, it does get better and it does get easier. And then it suddenly helps you in other elements of your life to get things done, to shun things out, to put your phone away and not really care about the notifications and all these things that are going on around us all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, so, so working on those things with your athletes in the past or whether it was cadets or whoever you worked with, how can you make that something they want to do? And believe in. Yeah, um, there's a lot in what yeah, you that, just said. So, so I think so, you know. I'm also trying to um, navigate that question yeah. myself, but because um, I'll, I'll share yeah. with you like a couple of things. My this is my bias that again that I'll share because there are many different ways of looking at this. I have friends that are in the biofeedback space, um, neurofeedback space, uh, meditation, etc. I gravitate more towards mindfulness. The idea of being authentically present non-judgmentally so that when you do have that thought you don't judge it you just notice it and then come back to a centered place and i find you can practice that in a lot of easy ways walking talking eating you can do a lot of things by just being more present there are others that leverage more technology to do that my bias is i don't want to become a slave to the technology that's going to put me in the zone or make my attention better i want to be able to do it myself anywhere I think for this, again, my experience with athletes is if you can teach them something they already know, they just don't realize they know it and make it something that's either fun or easy or both, you can get more mileage out of it. Um, When you deal with people that are under a lot of time constraints, student athletes generally anywhere, uh, West Point, especially um, the idea of you can do a 12 minute relaxation session and get many of the same health benefits as you would out of four hours of sleep and you did it in 12 minutes. Well, while you were doing that, you were also slowing the system down and being completely present on one task, which was the relaxation exercise. We found a way to do it in four minutes too. That buys back a lot of time. If you share with them, like with a lot of the athletes here, I talked about the intentionality of how you transition from your dorm or apartment to the practice setting. Well, if you have a routine that you go through and you're turning off one part of your life for a moment and you're transitioning into the next one and you step in with intentionality and on your way there, you were just really present with your intent for practice. Now you step in having activated your system. So you're going to get off to a better start and have a better experience in there. And then as you transition back out, you have some reflection time in there, but you, now the, the reflection is what went well for me today? What can I do a little bit better tomorrow? Now let's get closure on that experience and transition back to homework time. You're taking ownership of the time that you would, that you're already moving from place to place. You're just building in 
into your strategy of intentionality and transition, which means you're being really present with your thoughts and really intentional. And the more you do that, the easier it is. So now you're finding like, am I doing meditation? No, but have I slowed my system down to one thing and take ownership of that? And it's getting easier to do? Yes. Okay. So now let's have a conversation about how you can take that lived experience and apply it into another setting that you're in. So I think when you can make something natural, um, taking advantage of things that people are going to do anyway, and just tweaking it a little bit so that it fits within this growth and development of the self-regulation skills. And then they realize, oh, I don't have to work at this thing. I just do it. That's where the money is. Even in this podcast setting, um, it's amazing how putting your phone, even for me, putting my phone on airplane mode, how it helps my focus. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Just that. I had this conversation with a uh, team um, shortly before I left last spring. And I asked, did, you, did anybody notice what's my routine when I step into the team room? And they started picking up a couple of different things. Like my backpack is never with me. Um, my phone is never with me. Um, if the phone, if by constraint, the backpack is on the floor, then the phone is face down on the backpack silent. So I can't see it. I can't hear it. The only thing that's in my hand is my notebook. Cause I tend to take notes as athletes are talking so I can connect back to their thoughts. So I do that very intentionally every time, because if I'm checking my phone while you're talking one, I can't split my attention that way. So one of them is pretend and one of them is real. And if I'm worried about the phone, that's probably the real thing. So now I'm pretending to listen to you, which means I'm not helping you. So if you and I are having a conversation, you're the only thing in the world to me at that moment. And everything else that might be important but not relevant in that moment is somewhere else. And you can, it's so easy if you want to, to build that into your day. And again, and so it comes down to, do I have to do this? Is this an expectation or do I really want to do this? Cause I want to get better at it. And that when we talked at the very beginning about language matters, that language of want to is really empowering. Is there a, um, an, a group of, or maybe a couple individuals, um, that you are just absolutely fascinated by their ability to perform that you keep studying doesn't have to be in the world of sports. You know, we're, yeah. we're, it's, it's easy, I think, for us to, uh, like, you know, I'm jumping to Michael Jordan, uh, yeah. you know, Kobe Bryant. Um, but for you, who? I, that's a great question because I, I read broadly across a lot of different environments. I'm uh, working through a book right now called The Extended Mind, which I find fascinating and how much of the thinking that we do is actually how we're interacting with our environment and not just being alone with our thoughts. And so thought leaders in, in spaces where they're looking at things differently from what we might have seen coming out of a cognitive psychologist's article 10 years ago or something, that fascinates me when I look at sports that don't so sorry so looking at individuals who maybe think yeah. in different ways yeah i try to do that as much as possible i i never if i'm working through books it's never the same genre um two books in a row it's never the same application it might be a military book a sport book a business book something i try to vary it up and and see well who else out there and that another thing that's really helpful in that space is having a circle of friends that you can connect with and say 
you know, what are you reading these days? Let's swap reading lists and so forth and have a conversation. So I find that really helpful. From an athlete perspective, I like to look at uh, athletes that are not necessarily paid attention to as much like year round. Um, I maybe in 2019-ish, maybe, somewhere in the 18, 19 uh, space, I became really fascinated with following Michaela Schifrin and the way that she approaches skiing and life and so forth. And this was before the buildup to the Olympics and, and things not going the way she wanted to and everything, but there was solid gold every time she opened her mouth. So I loved getting into that. Um, and then... The other thing that I really, really enjoy, and it's like I just listened to a podcast this morning before coming over here where, you know, a a former student athlete who we know was being interviewed. And when I start hearing athletes that I knew back when and I hear how they're making sense of things in the world, it's so much fun. So now I'm following these athletes who used to come asking me questions and now I'm listening to how they've made sense in their space. And there's a, there's several of them now. That's more fun to me than following, you know, the, in, in, no disrespect intended towards yeah, any, yeah. but following the pro athlete that's become famous and, or is in a hall of fame or something. Like, that's great. But I'm following people that are making sense of things in a really special way. And I knew them back when they were trying to figure it out. Do you have a uh, book recommendation? Oh, oh you know, because I, I want to actually be more specific and challenge you a little bit. Okay. Um, a book that maybe has influenced you, uh, could have been many years ago, but a specific book that you can throw at me to add to my list. I can, I'll give you... And the listeners, of course. Yeah, I can give you probably four or five right off the top of the bat. I, I loved, um, I read a book by George Leonard many years ago, in the 90s, called Mastery. And I, I really liked that and his approach to laying out what it means to either chase a skill versus master something um, where with mastery you're never done like you can always get a little bit better so i love that i love carol dweck's work on mindset uh, which i think it, she's one that really brought to light the idea of growth mindset versus fixed mindset and how as humans we're going to live in both spaces but we can get better at the growth mindset and there's some components of that that are really helpful um, yeah, again, a bias here, uh, my first mentor in sports psychology, Bob Rotella, he has a series of books out. Um, uh, he, one that I found athletes really resonated with was how champions think it's very practical and makes a lot of sense and it's easy read. Uh, and I hear Bob's voice every time I pick it up. And then, uh, Nate Sinzer, who I mentioned earlier, he's got, um, a book out called the confident mind. I know we had several soccer players reading that this past year. Uh, very, again, very practical. He's got a wealth of knowledge to share. And then um, there are some different books out there, and I'm, I'm blanking on some of the titles, uh, but one's around the idea of adaptation, adaptation and growth, um, which are it's just a, a healthy space in there. And then if you want to talk about team culture, you always go back to legacy with, with the All Blacks. Dr. Carlson, um, it was, again, honor, pleasure having you sit here with me. Um, it's great being here in Happy Valley State College, Pennsylvania. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure.